Hello. Welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Brad Giesman. Brad is the co-founder of Darkbit.io. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I'm really happy to talk with you. I don't think we've ever spoken one-on-one before, but I know you from the Twitters and I've seen some of your talks and you're a very interesting person. Oh, (laughs) thank you. I haven't had anyone on yet who has the kind of focus on security and Kubernetes that you have. So uh, we'll be talking about those things. But first, I I wanted to just ask about what it is that that got you started in computing in the first place and and how you found your way into this Kubernetes community. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll try to be brief. Uh, Yeah. I was... I don't know, remember, I don't remember which age I was when we got a used Apple IIe and it had dual floppies that meant you could load and then save separately. And I just remember wearing out the keyboard playing Oregon Trail and Load Runner and things that I just got so, uh, oh, where the world's Carmen Sandiego? Oh, that's a blast from the past. That's what got me to love this idea that a computer could be something that it entertains, it educates, it has a lot more to it. I learned you know, there was a typing tutor, there was like the print shop pro with the dot matrix banners. We'd make happy birthday signs with it. It just, something clicked. And we went right from an Apple IIe to like Windows 95 playing Doom 2 and, and joysticks and gaming. And it, when it hit gaming, I think that's when it became real. Like, I think that's when 3DFX voodoo cards that are add-on cards (laughs) and getting drivers to work and IRQ port share, like all that stuff was like... Oh my gosh. I I was a latchkey kid. So when you get home from school, there's like a new demo and you turn on the dial up and you're like, please, can it get done before my mom needs to use the computer later or that second line needs to be used later for phone calls or whatever. But I would break the PC trying to make a game work. And I'd be like, I have until six o'clock before she gets home to fix it and revert it back or uninstall the driver. So I got really good being self-aware of what changes I was making and try to debug that. And so I carried that forward. And thankfully my parents were like, Hey, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, I, I don't know. Cause at the time I was playing uh, ice hockey and I thought, yeah, you want to be a professional ice hockey player. And I had the chance to go to a hockey camp at Notre Dame and, um, one of the uh, coaches there is Dave Poulin, a guy who was in the NHL who I had a poster in my bedroom wall. I actually wow. found the picture last week of him as a Philadelphia Flyer. He had asked me, he was like, hey, what do you want to do for college? And I was like, I'm doing computers. And he's like, okay. I told my parents <laughs> that. And my dad just like was like, oh, are you kidding me? That was like, do you want to play hockey at Notre Dame? Maybe. I was like, nobody told me this. I didn't know what this conversation was going to be. Like, holy crap. So anyway, I go to school and I go to a business school, take all my electives in the comp side department, fell in love with Linux. And I did yeah. a whole semester where I was just like, I'm going to be on Red Hat 6.2. I'm going to do the whole semester just as a Linux purist. I had all that stuff. And that was probably the best education I had being at you know, James Madison. Like there was the business side and learn about you know, why businesses do what they do, how that works with computing. But really, I was getting my education in the dorm room. Like we were just trying to play multiplayer games. We we're trying to share the internet connection. We we're trying to, you know, IP chains, uh, yeah. firewalling and stuff. And that's what really led me to like, this is what I want to do. I don't know how, but someday I'm going to be a pen tester. And a couple jobs later, I'm landing as a pen tester. And I realized that was a path to burnout at the time. And I still liked breaking, but I also liked building. And the cloud came along and AWS and this idea of automation. And I was like, oh, I could build 20 servers that do this thing and I can script it. And so this kind of pathway sort of arrived somewhere in the 24th. 14, 15, 16 era that like distributed systems that solve this problem from an API are, are very, very interesting to me. And when we built our first capture the flag exercise platform on top of Kubernetes in the 1.3 era where Calico was alpha, uh, <laughs> we had network policy, like we needed that. Uh, that's where I appreciated Kubernetes at its fullest. It was still pretty early. It was still, you know, some rough edges. And I just fell in love with the technology and what it could do, how it could amplify 
what one person or small team can do mm -hmm. uh, and maintain. And that's where I was like, hey, I have a security perspective. Let me go give a talk at this thing called KubeCon Seattle 2017. Um, was it Seattle 2017 or Austin? I don't remember. 2017. And I felt like I felt like an outsider and I felt like I was giving this talk like, you don't know me. Are you going to trust what I have to say? And after the talk, it was nothing but welcoming and not challenging, but like, hey, what did you mean by that? Not what did you mean by that uh, you know, type of conversation. And I was like, hey, these, are, do, these people are doing really interesting things. They're very welcoming. Wouldn't I want to be a part of like, I think this is probably where this fits. Like, I feel like it's the right type of people. I want to be a part of this community. And over time, it's just gotten better, more and better, uh, more exciting, more different things. And just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just something struck. And that's how I got here. So we talked about this a little bit before the audio started rolling, and I, I have those same kind of feelings about the Kubernetes community. It it just seems very welcoming, very open. There's uh, just so many amazing people that I've met who are a part of the community and and give a lot to yeah. make Kubernetes work as a project. And some of them are getting paid to do that, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's not a lot of work, right? To keep Absolutely. the thing rolling and, you know, to be an open source maintainer and go through all of those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, shout out to the community. Absolutely. Like, I, I know it sounds cliche, but Twitter is where I purposely went, you know, three or four years ago, because that's where everybody seemed to be. But I've gotten more back from that than I could have anticipated. I, I was just trying to like, keep up to date with what what's being said and what's being done and how people are feeling about and responding to things that are happening in the community. And it's just sort of gone from there. It's just, you know, I feel like I'm Twitter buddies with way more people than I ever thought I would be. I just you know, can't wait to meet them in person someday. Cause like, it's just such a positive experience overall. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to meeting you. We haven't done that. No, I don't right? think yet. Like when? So someday soon, hopefully I can't wait. There's been a lot of talk in the past about whether Kubernetes is secure by default. And I, I think that most folks that I know come down on one side of that. I don't think there's really a lot of controversy, but it seems that there's been a lot more effort maybe over the last year or two to uh, to get it more to that point. It seemed like things used to be super wide open and that that it's something that people are working on and thinking about a lot. Yes, I fully agree that it needs help for most threat models. If you're running a hobbyist app, there's no sensitive data. If it got breached, it, that's probably okay for some folks' default. But yeah. if you're doing anything with, with shared workloads, like, here's what I always say. I always say that no matter what, you're running a multi-tenant cluster. You have at least two tenants. And by that, I mean, you have a persona that cares about the workloads and you have a persona that cares about the cluster and its system workloads. And you probably don't want those to cross uh, paths because you know, if, if one of the front end facing containers is compromised and you're not doing anything else to protect your other persona, by definition, you're multi-tenant. And so I think there's a fair bit of work that you tend to have to do to make sure that those set of assumptions are well guarded. So, you know, RBAC, network policy, uh, admission control of some kind, preventing uh, payloads. But also I think what, what tends to happen is that advice works for smaller setups. Like it's, it's reasonable to understand when it's just two namespaces and a couple pods here and a couple pods there. Sure. Where I think the challenge is, is when it becomes a multi-tenant cluster or soft multi-tenant cluster where it's like five teams of similar trust level in the same org and you have things like ingress that are shared or you have keys or certificates that are shared. Like that's where it gets really tricky. And I think that's where when folks say, oh, it's insecure by default, they're saying it's insecure by default for my version of what I want as far as isolation. And I think you have to use the tools that are there and sometimes add some other tools that are purpose built for this to make those boundaries be what they need to be for your use case. What are some of those other tools? 
things that are like admission control, sometimes pod security policy isn't enough, right? If you need more than that, you want to do things on all the resources or if you want to validate you know, images and things. Network policy is tricky. There's a lot of uh, changes coming in terms of how that's expressed and a lot of solutions that are trying to tackle this. Some that are third party, some that are built in, but I think network policy is probably one of the, the most underutilized capabilities that I've seen to protect lateral movement, but that's because it's just incredibly difficult for most people to reason about and or operate at a larger scale. There's a lot of tools that are helping that. Um, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I've seen a lot of research in terms of how to manage hundreds of microservices by labels and have sets of assumptions based on that and auto-generate network policy. And I think that's where those capabilities have to get to for that to be what some people would consider as by default or very close to default. If I just install this thing, then I get those set of assumptions and how that protects it the way that I think out of the box. Right. And of course, everybody's use cases are different. And like you said, you have to weigh the value of what it is that you're protecting, right? It doesn't necessarily make sense to put tons of time and energy into locking something down if it's a fun game you put on the internet and there's no PII or anything like that. Yeah, there's a, you know, to do all the things, like uh, if we were to say, turn on every widget, every knob, every button, every log, it gets expensive pretty quickly if you have a fair amount of traffic. If you're saying audit log, every action that's going through the API server, every firewall log, every VPC flow log, every, uh, you know, trace at full resolution, you know, not sampled, we're talking about just gobs of data. And so to do it right, you have to be willing to accept some of those trade-offs to get that visibility and the cost that goes, goes with it. Yeah. You've worked a lot with cloud operations. What kinds of things do you think that people should be thinking about in terms of cloud security posture? Yeah, it always goes to like the, the conversation with this always starts with like public buckets like, do you have any public buckets? <laughs> yes, that's what hits the news. And that's the easiest thing I think for everybody to reason about. But if you stretch that a little bit or twist that a little bit, it's more like, are you aware of your public surface? And by that, I mean public IPs, public buckets, uh, exposed managed services like databases and, and data stores and things. And I think that's where it becomes more interesting. And I think the first problem is getting what I would consider an inventory of high enough quality and coverage that you can then reason about your resources. And by that, I mean, people are typically doing it with tooling that's doing for each region, list all instances, for each region, list all VPCs, et cetera, et cetera. They're just going down the list and they're building that inventory as a point in time snapshot. And I think the tools in the CSPM, the cloud security posture management market, are doing a better job in this perspective, getting an inventory. And then the next thing is, is like, well, what do I care about? Because it's just so much. If you take every, meta, every piece of metadata or configuration about every cloud resource, every orchestration configuration, every workload inside Kubernetes, it gets big pretty quickly. But... If you do that, if you, if you have what we like to call a perfect inventory, good enough, right, that you have the thing that you can articulate and query for in relative speed, you can ask some really interesting questions. And I think this is where the CSPM space in general is going and where I think platform teams want to be uh, considering when it comes to their security posture. I think if you look at a lot of the benchmark checks that are out there, it's very nominal things. It's like, does this have this setting? Does this have this setting? And you're like, yes, I do. Or no, that doesn't apply. But you know that that's very surface level. It doesn't really get to the part that makes uh, people go, yeah, this is something I want to spend a lot of time in. But if the question is asked, like, do I have any publicly exposed pods that have certain types of credentials attached and those credentials have this type of access or that type of access to my cloud resources, or do they have token credentials inside the cluster that let them create workloads? And do I have the network access to be able to do that? And do I have no compensating controls or you know, other software solutions that would prevent that communication from happening? And I see there's a CVE or a vulnerability in that container. Yeah. That's what I wanna prioritize because there's literally tens of thousands of checks 
and tens of thousands of low and low moderate risk things. And you're like, well, which one's important? It's when two plus two equals 10, as we like to say in you know, the risk category. It's like when you have these two things and you put them together, they combine to something uh, more important. So that's what I said, like you have a public uh, container that has vulnerabilities and has access to credentials that make it maybe elevate permissions in the account or the project, that's something you want to go after. So I think you can only do that, though, if you have a solid inventory that you can query from that and that understands those relationships uh, because the relationships are key. Uh, that's where you can branch across resources and ask questions that, that correlate those things. And that's where I think prioritization uh, power happens where you can say, these are the top 10 things I need to care about. And there's a very, very good story of why, not just some tool said this was a high. Some tool said like these five conditions are true. Therefore, right. this is a direct privilege escalation. You probably want to go take that asterisk out of the RBAC or out of the IAM policy. <laughs> You gave a really fascinating talk with Ian Coldwater about advanced persistence threats. And I'm almost positive that it was in this talk, but there was a Q&A after it. Somebody mentioned that most of the attacks that you showed off in the talk, that you had to be admin. You had to have admin privileges to do them. And and your response was basically, oh, it's easy to get admin. And, and I was kind of in shock. And I don't know that I slept really well that night. So... <laughs> Yeah, that was a fun talk. Ian is, Ian is so great to work with. We had so much fun prepping for that and giving that talk. That was the first time I've ever shared the stage with Ian, so that was a lot of fun. The question, I think, I think Ian and I chatted about it after. We're like, they acted like, I, I'm not, I don't want to put this person out, but their assumption was that it was very difficult to get cluster admin, so therefore yeah. all of these attacks that you're doing are kind of... Uh, well, I mean, it's really hard to get there anyway. And our view uh, from, the, from the breaker's perspective is like, depending on the cluster, there might be two, three, or four ways to get there. And some of them aren't that difficult. Host path, poorly set up RBAC, uh, Tiller, v, you know, Helm V2, still running. Operators that have exposed services that let you change the deployment's image to whatever you want it to. Like, there's... <laughs> There tends to be that. And then there's, like I said, the bigger the cluster, the greater chance that there's an RBAC permission issue that causes a, a loophole in the escalation path. So maybe it's two or three commands. But that was, like, we're looking at it like, let's assume that your cluster admin, for the sake of, because there's multiple paths to get there that are very common in a lot of clusters. But also, I think we wanted to talk about the insider threat. Like a developer is almost always one or two commands away from cluster admin unless a lot of things are done correctly. So even if it's just, oh, well, we trust these folks, you need to be able to see what they're doing and make sure that you could capture if they did what they said they didn't. And that's, that's why we're saying the insider threat was also a part of the advanced persistence threats. Sure. Yeah, I think you always have to keep that in mind. We want to trust people, but you, you also want to audit them. Yeah, and I think the goal for that talk was just to have fun. Like, just be creative and being sneaky and, you know, bringing in the honk. Uh, it, it, just to sort of push the envelope of assumptions a bit. Like, yeah. it seems kind of silly that you would run another API server right next to the current one, but here's why you might do that. Would you really do that? Probably not, but it draws out tactics and techniques or workarounds or getting past other features that people are assuming is completing that checkbox that is it's always getting all the audit logs well what if i just hit another api server oh right like that's the whole point is just drawing attention to the, the potential for sidestepping yeah I, I worked at an isp in the 90s and saw a lot of boxes that got rooted back then and it was a very very common procedure to want to avoid logging or tamper with it or do something to obscure the fact that you've accessed a host Absolutely. I, I think it's, um, it's important to remember those roots of if, if you can take a little bit of time and cover your tracks, eventually the attackers will get that capability inside Kubernetes and they'll be able to, to make that very difficult uh, for someone going after the fact to see what happened. So one of the big advances recently related to security is the, the CKS certification. So mm. now there's a security specific certification that you can take. And I was excited to hear this because it seems like 
educating people about how to think about security in terms of Kubernetes is really important. And I wondered if you, you know, have thoughts about the CKS. I don't know if you've taken it yourself or if you know people who have. Yeah, I have not taken it myself. Uh, I was a part of the exam creation, so I'm. Oh, okay. I'm I didn't of, know that. I'm not able to therefore be certified in it, but I have right. a, uh, you know credit for being part of the exam creation process. By the way, that the process is done by a very smart, very kind group of people, and the folks that uh, participated in the CKS creation just top notch, trying to do their very best and make an exam that I think reflects the challenges that we face securing clusters. So I'm pretty proud of that output. I got to see the end result, you know, sort of in the alpha stage. Uh, but they were really great about giving the exam creators codes to be able to give out to folks that were looking to, to sit for the CKS. So I, you know, tweeted one day and within like three minutes, all the codes were gone. <laughs> and I was like, I wish I had more to give. I'm sorry. But um, a few of those folks have taken it and have passed. And I, I think understanding that the CKS comes after the CKA, the Certified Kubernetes Administrator, you already have to know quite a bit. And then when you take the CKS, it's just a different lens on a lot of those same things. It's covering all the bases that you think it requires hands-on. I feel pretty confident that if somebody passes the CKS, they definitely know a lot about a lot. Uh, and a lot of the core things that are very, like it was broken down by component and trying to get the coverage. And that's how they started with the process. And from there, it was up to us to help make those challenges that fit into that framework. And I thought they did a very nice job with that. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to see that grow and folks take that and prove to external entities, you know, companies that, hey, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to the security aspects of Kubernetes. Yeah, that's fantastic. What I saw looked very hands-on, and I was happy to see that. Yep. It's no slouch. <laughs> My experience working in infrastructure was that things were rapidly becoming more and more complex, and it was getting difficult to keep up. It's actually one of the reasons that I got out of SRE was because I just had this crushing imposter syndrome about the <laughs> fact that there was a new infrastructure tool every five minutes and I wasn't an expert in all of them, you know. I'm, I'm assuming that security people go through that same pain? Everyone does. If you're thinking about being like in cloud, take a cloud native security practitioner and hopefully you get to be on the earlier side of the conversations, but you're probably not. You're probably learning about things that are already in place and in production and go, oh, I didn't know we had that thing to secure. I look at it like the, the speed of innovation and development and cloud spend specifically or infrastructure spend from a team that's able to automate their patterns and just make infrastructure on demand and make changes so quickly, that presents a huge challenge even if you don't change a tool. Just the fact that there's so much entropy and, and, and scaling and amount of new infrastructure every day or this new dev environment, now it's gone. And that, <laughs> what that means to traditional security mental models of somebody who's like, I'm in charge of securing this infrastructure. They used to be able to say, here's my firewall, here's my DMZ, here's my second firewall. Things are, are structured this way. If you want to make a rule change, you got to talk to me or my firewall team. That's not happening anymore. Those yeah. layers have collapsed. So I would say it's even harder. And I see the amount of tooling to keep up with that is not keeping up in pace. I see a lot of security toil uh, that, that's just sort of like, well... I have this tool and it's doing this thing and it's giving me this output that I have to triage every day. And yeah. every day it just gets 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And there's no cohesive structure for them to sort of go, hey, let's step back and realize what, what sort of things I'm doing on a daily basis. And can I go back early on and make some design decisions? Sorry, it's already been designed that way. It's just how it is. That's always going to be exposed publicly for the next three years until we sunset it. You're like, well, then all the logs that I have to, all the costs associated with that and mental effort is exponential. And I feel this like core pain having, you know, work with customers yeah. that are doing this on, on the regular. I just feel this, um, quite frankly, it leads to burnout. It's, it's yeah. no, no other way to say it. I, so I, I want to say I, I feel your pain, but as just as an SRE would feel pain of everything's moving so quickly and folks who are trying to secure it are, are, are right there with them. It's just feeling different things and different outputs causing that pain. 
Yeah. Do you have any advice for folks who are dealing with that toil? I think it takes a lot of things, <laughs> but if you can, you know, DevOps done well as a culture where the value stream, the thing that makes you money, the thing that keeps you all employed, where features are, you know, being a part of those conversations, being ingrained and realize that every change or every feature may have an effect on the output of that service that causes maybe not pain for the customer, but pain for the internal teams and, and rises that cost. So I think measuring that is different and unique for everyone, but I think it's important that those voices be heard in those conversations. So as, as much as you can be a part of those to help make sure that like if you're running a team or running a security team and your team is just worn out and you know, the SRE teams are seeing the same thing, it might be because there's too much friction. It might not be because you're pushing too many code changes a day. It just might be that every incremental change that you're doing causes all this downstream excess work. That's what I'm defining as toil, right? So I, I think yeah. being a part of those conversations is absolutely crucial. I think it's actually pronounced DevSecOps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> I, I understand the joke. And I, it's like some folks are, are using the word to, to mean things. And I, yes, I look at it like the culture is the thing, how you put a name on it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the security has to be a part of that. The risk has to be the audit, the financial, the, you know, the customer user experience. Like all of that is part of that word in my opinion. And so uh, if you want to use it to sell your latest product or platform, you know, go for that. But I think if you're getting to the culture, you're thinking holistically, everybody has a seat at the table, everybody has a voice. Yeah. I mean, obviously the sooner that you get that feedback from your security team and the closer you can work with them earlier in the process, the, the more you're going to and it's not just paying for them, right? It's paid for you too. Because yes. if the thing lands in production and then you find out there's a big problem and you're going to have to re-engineer it, that's a huge headache. Absolutely. But what kinds of things do you think that folks in that situation can do to try to get themselves in the door earlier? Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it starts with leadership. I think it's a recognition and an understanding that being at that seat early has positive downstream effects. And I think having a champion, having a director or, you know, somebody with a little bit of credibility, it doesn't have to be the C levels, but somebody that's like, Hey, we're doing this migration or we're doing this greenfield project, or we're, we're reimagining this V1 to V2 getting in on those conversations early. I know folks that do, you know, like time sharing where they'll embed, put folks in different teams to sort of absorb and be a part of it and be a voice that's right there in those tight feedback loops. But I think it starts from the planning stages. I think it starts from the, yeah. uh, the, the metrics that you're going for, the amount of effort and, and work that's to be done and how you can streamline that early on so that it has the best positive outcome at the end. I think, I think those conversations early require a lot of trust. Yeah. I think if I was to give advice to security folks is if the first word that comes out of your mouth is no, <laughs> you had better not toot that horn unless it is literally completely assumed risk. Like it's very rare that what you're saying is completely true, that it's as high a risk or a likelihood as you might think, even though you're well-meaning, you're like, you want to avoid all risk. There's yeah. obviously risk to doing business and you need to find that balance, but you can't uh, cry wolf. Uh, so when you're saying, no, think yes. And if you can get to yes, and <laughs> you'll earn that trust, like, okay, yes, we can do that as long as, or with the assumption that these following activities are happening in this stage of the process, then right. we won't have any surprises when it gets down to us, or, you know, you're using the best practices that we're setting out and that we're working with you with. And I, I think that sort of goes to security teams now more than ever have to embed in those daily flows to be able to speak the same language and see how they're shipping. Like it's sort of cliche to say in order to be a breaker, you have to be a builder first. But I think that is more speaking to the empathy of how they're trying to get something done. Mm -hmm. You know, the goal of a development team or a feature team is just trying to get, get cards from left to right. Yeah. And that's how they're measured. And so if you come in and the card is moved to the right and then you come in and say, er, nope, put it back to the left, you've broken that, 
that trust because you didn't get into that card early. You need to be in those planning meetings uh, to say like, these are our goals. These are how, this is how we're graded. And that depends on how you are graded as well. We, we're in this together and have those shared objectives. I just think that takes a lot of trust building and a lot of yeah. sitting with and understanding their day-to-day before you come at with, well, you need these 10 controls because the first two or three controls, they'll be like, okay, that seems, all right, I guess we'll do it. That, that, like, I don't really see the risk there, uh, but okay, we'll do that. And then the third or fourth thing, you're like, all right, listen, we're just doing busy work here for the sake of making your checkboxes easier to check. That's not building the trust the right way. It's like, look, all right, we're going to use this tool or this platform. Let's make sure we have these settings enabled and then you're good to go. We'll touch base in a week and have those conversations at that same level of trust. Yeah. No, I think that point about what people are being measured on is a great one. And really, that's what DevOps came from, right, is the fact that engineers were getting measured on velocity, on features that are shipping, and operations people were getting measured on things like how stable is the system, how many outages there are, and those two things weren't really aligned. But I think that there is definitely a feeling in some shops that the security folks are kind of the enemy, right? They're the ones who are going to put the brakes on your work or or make it a lot harder. And we want to do what we can to avoid just having to deal with them if we can. Yeah. The default deny that's been explicitly trained into most security professionals head is like, don't allow it unless explicitly allowed. Like that's just how it works. But realize that the things that you're allowing are how your business operates and why you get a paycheck and why your, your organization might be out competing another. And so it's always a balance of that risk. And you have to be aware that there are give and take, although ultimately you might have to be very clear about your understanding of risk and make sure that you're communicating that effectively. If there's a disagreement, you're like, I don't agree with that exception or that allowance. Make sure that it's communicated so that it doesn't necessarily land on you, but you don't want to be the one that just says no and takes that risk on yourself of slowing the business down unless there's really good reason, unless you can prove it. And if you can, that will build the trust that you need for those next conversations. You just can't pump, you got to pump the brakes. You can't lock the brakes. Uh, Yeah. It seems like a lot of times that that impulse to say no also comes from the fact that that team is the one dealing with the auditors, right? And yep. they know they know the things they're going to be asked. They know what the auditors, you can kind of see it coming, right? That thing that the auditors are going to dig at. Yeah. And that's a whole nother game in and of itself. But yes, like they're trying to, they're trying to optimize for their own ease of audit uh, and, and balance. And that, that's a tricky dance as well. <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion recently about security in the software supply chain um, since the solar winds compromise happened. What do you think that folks who are working on open source projects should be thinking about in terms of that ability for someone to get malicious code into their project? That's the trillion-dollar question, isn't it? Because, you know... The, I, I don't have a trillion dollars, by the yeah, way. I know, but the, <laughs> I'm probably not going to answer it correctly and win it anyway. No, it's <laughs> security, software supply chain is... I think folks like to oversimplify what it is to maybe fit their specific solution. Some say it's, you know, uh, is it signed or is it from a trusted developer? How do we measure that trust? I think... It comes to the fact that there's a balance, again, that balance between velocity and building on, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And taking advantage, that's what it means by taking advantage of those open source projects and libraries that make you run faster. You're doing that in a trade-off of some level of trust. And in some cases, there's very wide ranging amounts of trust in the projects that you're using for your your applications. And I think when your organization takes a holistic approach, it is not just a single solution. I think it's a combination of understanding where you're getting software, how you measure its trust, how you continue to measure its trust, how you validate it over time, uh, what things you're willing to accept in your organization, what things you're not. And then it becomes you know, how are you validating and, and making sure that those assumptions stay true over time? And right. 
Also, what things are those types of applications next to? Is it next to data? Is it next to credentials? Is it next to access to things? Uh, and take mitigating steps to make sure that those types of exploits have you know, minimal blast radius. They don't go past that app or they don't extend past that container as best you possibly can and that you're, you're logging the things and you're preventing the things that you need to. It's sort of a holistic problem. It's not just image vuln scanning, for example. It's not yeah. just software composition analysis. It's not just signing containers or signing binaries. Or, it's everything of how you establish trust and where you get that from and where you're willing to, quite frankly, let go of a little bit of trust. And so I say yeah. that the trillion-dollar question is because it's how do you build trust on untrusted code? <laughs> That's really the problem um, yeah. is, is can you find a, a balance or, or enough trust out of that trusted code for it to be worth it to use it in your software? Because I think it's really easy just to NPM install and, and get all the things and go, oh, looks good to me, yeah. and then run really quickly. And that might get you a competitive advantage. And nobody has time to audit all of that, right, themselves. I, I think it's incredibly challenging to eat like i know that there's projects out there that are just trying to understand the dependency tree really 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 well and even then it's extremely difficult and i think a lot of that work uh of knowing exactly what packages what commit made a version of a specific package the tree of dependencies i think that's there's some foundational work there that's going on that will be the basis of understanding that tree and maybe then there are some opportunities there to, to build trust on top of it and maybe add in signing and add in things of you know what pieces are signed which aren't and which organization owns that code or which foundation runs that code and have some level of, of policy that you can you can add to that what about more from the perspective of a maintainer? Say I've got an open source project, I'm a maintainer. What should I be thinking about in terms of somebody trying to land some sort of malicious code in a project? Yeah, so obviously, you know, the committer or maintainer permissions to the repository should be extremely uh, stringent in terms of making sure you know those folks. It's not just somebody that's been committing for a couple months and make them maintainer without... Uh, you know, a lot of uh, inherent trust there, but to FA, password strength, all that good stuff, like making sure that uh, you have reviews, PRs checked, make sure that also of late, uh, make sure that your CI actions aren't triggering code execution from new commits. Uh, that's a oh. fun one, right? So make sure that you're, if, if you're accepting PRs from outside, that you're not auto running uh, new CI jobs where your workflow file is what has changed, because uh, that's how you know you can run crypto mining and, and secret stealing uh, attacks just by sending a PR in and the CI just auto kicks off and, and it took it took the workflow, the YAML file change and and ran the shell command that they wanted. Um, so I think having guards against your branches where you're actually running workloads or running builds is extremely important. And I think just the the standard set of linting and those types of things can help find some things, but also just that, that solid PR review and acceptance criteria um, is, is really what tends to be the, the balance, I think, of protection and speed. Yeah. So we just had the situation come up with the Linux kernel maintainers recently where folks from the University of Minnesota were doing a, a study. They're trying to land code into the kernel itself that had vulnerabilities in it. People were very, very upset about this. And I think understandably, what's your take on that? Do you have feels about that? I, I do. I get what they're trying to do. That's the subject under test. I can't share with them otherwise it changes the test but i think a review board uh should be re-reviewing this as <laughs> is this a fair and ethical use of everybody's time i think right i think they're especially from the, the replies from the maintainers like they put in so much time energy and and code, every document, they do so much to make sure that the project does what it wants to do. And it means they try to make the culture that, that you're coming in there and you're just trying to take a cheap shot basically <laughs> for your sake of your research. I think that will absolutely rub people the wrong way and does not build that trust 
that you need. We all know that there are improvements that can be made into that process. And that's yeah. just poking at that in just that, that way. Just, I don't think it landed very well. And I, I, I would prefer to see that that type of research be reviewing previous PRs and finding those issues and trying to find systemic reasons why those are allowed through or what gets missed and help improve that tooling or help improve that review process as opposed to just inserting whatever random purposely inlaid vulnerabilities and then going, oops, sorry, no, that was just a test. Uh, You all failed. That just is not building the trust. Yeah, it's interesting. I I actually ended up deleting some tweets <laughs> about this because I read the paper and and if you look at what's laid out in the paper, it really looks like there were good intentions there Absolutely. and and there was a process, right? And the process was supposed to involve them actually taking advantage of the lag time in the approval process to make sure that things didn't get merged, right? So the idea was supposed to be that they get uh, looks good to be back and then they immediately let people know, hey, here's what's going on, don't merge that. And then they supposedly were supposed to be giving them uh, an actual patch that had the real fix in it without the vulnerability to sort of make up for the fact that they've done this. But but as I started hearing more and more from people, it sounded like they weren't necessarily following that process. Process or intentions, the, the impact is, is that you're, it's 1130 at night <laughs> and those maintainers are reviewing a patch because they want to facilitate improvements. And anything that's not part of that positive improvement culture is just you are wasting so much time of very expensive minds that could be working on some other patch that actually is beneficial or uh, improving. So I, I just, it's, it's more of a time thing for me, the toil thing. Yeah. Like we have such limited time on this earth. Do we want to be spending it finding and teasing these illegitimate time-wasting patches out? Yeah. I, I get where they're coming from. I get what they're trying to validate yeah. and, and test, but you're uh, wasting a lot of cycles of other people without their permission. And I think that they're very valid to have negative responses. The, the fact that people weren't consenting is one right. of the things that people talked about a lot. And it did really change my mind. That was like kind of why I was yeah. deleting tweets. It is really odd that that a review board looked at that and didn't classify it as human experiment. I, I, I think they probably saw the positive intent and thought this is a novel way to, to you know, measure this and yeah. didn't necessarily anticipate that, yeah. that uh, response. So we had a couple of questions from listeners. Okay. Um, so Waleed Shari, who has uh, thrown in some questions before. Thank you, Waleed. Appreciate you listening and, and um, giving us this feedback. Waleed asked... Uh, the Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem is getting richer and more extensive with many moving parts. It's hard to defend. What do you advise a new practitioner to think about when they're starting that journey? It's a lot different now to start than it was yeah. in the one three one four era when I started. It was very relatively straightforward to reason about. I liked Kubernetes the hard way and have a place in my heart for it because the sysadmin in me, like the, the thought of like, I, I can, if I see how it works from a, a binary and config flag and I can build it up, I can understand and reason about how it behaves. Yeah. I still think that's a really valid exercise if you really want to understand how things work and not feel like it's a, a magic box below a certain level. Um, the thing that I would recommend, like if I was taking a new c- cluster for my organization and trying to, to look at it from a security perspective, I would try to break it down to what, what does the posture, what does it look like and what things do I have and what surface do I have with nothing in it except for that bare initial state, right? So whatever, oh, the, automation, so whatever the automation gives me, gives me a blank AKS cluster, EKS cluster, G, you know, bare metal, whatever, what does that have? And then sort of step through each one of the things that you're adding to it. If it's like, oh, now I'm adding a log shipper or I'm adding a metrics uh, you know, aggregator or I'm adding, and this is where it kind of gets off the, the, the rails for a lot of people is, 
I'm adding operators that have tons of CRDs and tons <laughs> of RBAC. You really need to sort of take those changes in isolation and try to pare it down at one change at a time, even if it's a big, massive change. But look at those manifests, like what's being deployed and what, how does that change my assumptions about the state and the configuration of the cluster? Is it creating namespaces all over the place? Does it have permissions to view secrets everywhere? Like, what is it doing? It's not just installing a Helm chart and going, I think I understand what's going on. Like, you really have to look at uh, that change sort of in isolation. I like to just sort of step through that. And at some point, you might get to the point where, like, I understand pretty much everything that's going on in this cluster. Now I want to add this new thing or I want to install a service mesh. You have a better set of assumptions of how each thing built upon it, you know, from, from the right. foundation before you, like, just break it down, do one thing at a time is... is the best advice I can give because that's that's part of the complexity that I, I see and I think it gets out of hand very quickly when you're not the one making the changes, when the operator is making the changes to RBAC or it's making the deployments and you have to be understanding of how that, that affects. And then turn on audit logging and look for anything that looks like a create or an update or a delete and go, those are the things I need to understand the most because they're making changes to the state somehow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then once you understand that one cluster, you can work on the 10,000 other ones. Yeah. <laughs> Do that a few hundred <laughs> times and you'll have the patterns down. No, it's, but yeah, I, I think get very comfortable with RBAC and how it interacts and what are some of those sensitive verbs that you want to look out for and just sort of focus on those first, uh, instead of trying to tackle the whole thing. Like it yeah. has create pod or pod exec or, uh, you know, view secrets or, or access to secrets. Those are like, just start with those and you'll probably go down enough, but you'll, you'll learn quite a bit quickly. And then while we'd had a second part to that, which was reflecting on your journey, what are some of the things that made you curious or inspired you or kept you up at night? <sighs> I, I, I was a pen tester for only a couple years. I'm not saying like I'm a career pen tester, but that yeah. instilled the sense of curiosity. I like to think of myself as a misuse pen tester as opposed to a, a you know shell code uh, buffer overflow serious exploit writer. Yeah. I enjoy learning how a system is set up and then just challenging every assumption about whoever <laughs> built that system in a in a in a meaningful way. Like uh, the example like with the container drip uh, forgive that that name for it just help make it easy to remember. It started with a like how are image manifests made anyway? Let me go read the docs. And then I see this thing and it's like, oh, external URL for a layer? Hmm, what does that mean? Can I get it so that I can put a blank layer that just is like a tracking pixel? Every time this is pulled, like what source IP, what's the header, you know, what the, what the user agent was. If like, and I was like, oh, I'm going to make a tracking so I can do the, the metadata that, you know, the Docker registry or Docker hub can do if you're, a partner, but I just wanted to see like who's pulling my images and who would be silly enough to do that. Cause I don't have <laughs> hardly any images <laughs> under my Docker hub that are of, uh, we'll call useful value to most people other than me. Yeah. Uh, so I just was like, why is it that there's this external URL thing and you come to find out so that you can host layers from proprietary, you know, layers from other sources. And I was like, well, if I can do that, isn't it sending credentials to get access to this registry? And then I realized if you send it a 401 instead of a 200 to pull the layer, it'll send you a header. <laughs> I was like, oh, interesting. So the curiosity is just like, why is that there? What's it used for? And clearly I can control that as the image owner. So I can make everybody's puller, whatever their, their uh, runtime pulling the image go somewhere else and fetch a URL from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to try that. So I like to think of it as like, what's the assumption and can I control that input and what can I put in that input and just see where it goes from there. Just keep pulling on that tail until something interesting happens. And let's just say nothing interesting happens. You run into a block. It's like, well, it doesn't send credentials. So that was, you know, that's the patch for container D, but like until that point, I didn't, I, I, I just was happy with the fact that it pulled a layer from somewhere yeah. uh, with some of my honking crew. They were like, what else can it do? And I kept going at, they were goading me and going after it. And that's where we had a lot of the fun <laughs> ideas. Uh, and, and that's, and then having a crew that helps you like understands, you can bounce ideas off. That'll, that'll do that. So Ian Duffy and Rory uh, shout out. 
but yeah, that's, I just, I just think curiosity and challenging assumptions, it, you know, you see the fence in the middle of a field and you see the path going around the fence and like, or sorry, the, the gate in the middle of a field and you see the walkway going around it. You're like, somebody thought that that's going to stop somebody and they installed it. And that's just a, a false assumption. People just walked right around it. And I, I, I think about that in almost every day to day interaction. Yeah. Like anytime I can uh, get compute from somewhere, you know, somebody spinning up an instance just to do this job, what else can it do? It's, it's, it's always like, what else can it do is the start of a lot of fun journeys. Yeah. I, um, I really enjoyed Ian's talk at KubeCon San Diego, and that was very much kind of the viewpoint of the talk, right, is that you've got these people out there who are going to try to do things, and you might as well think of them as like a user persona and keep them in mind when you're designing your product. Yes, I'd be lying if I said I didn't get inspiration from from that talk in that regard and shaping yeah. my worldview because I, I didn't call I just called it curiosity, but now it's it, use, formalizing it as a user persona is far more useful. Yeah, it was uh, it was funny. I got to speak with Ian some after that uh, talk, and um, that was the time when they announced ephemeral containers and. When I'd heard about ephemeral containers, my initial reaction was, oh, this would be super handy for troubleshooting problems. And yes. I hadn't considered the fact that there are people who are probably, you know, out there building ephemeral containers with all of their favorite tools for rooting boxes in them. That's the set of assumptions. Like what if you're giving me access to something, just think how could somebody misuse that access? And it does I don't know that you have to be a security expert to just ask yourself that question because you're probably the one that's writing it and you have your set of assumptions. And if you just had a, a partner or a buddy on your team and you go, how would you misuse this? I bet because they would be close enough, but not too close, they would have a pretty good assumption uh, that they could you know, challenge what you were thinking and help make your approach better. Yeah. And then we had uh, one last question from at Magno Logan. Uh, thank you very much for sending us this. Uh, uh, Magno says, I'd like to ask Brad's opinion about the new MITRE attack for containers and any suggestions he may have to improve it. So this is something I had to look up. I wasn't familiar with it, but it seems to be a framework for, mm -hmm. for how you attack containers. Yeah. I, uh... I was asked, thankfully, to review uh, a lot of the work that was already done. I had some suggestions to send in that feedback, so I was happy to do that. I think uh, MITRE as an attack framework has a lot more uh, history, we'll say, in the traditional Windows Active Directory world. It has a lot more community and tooling that's built up around it, and we're starting to see that hit cloud and container uh, security as well. So it's really good to see a formalization of the techniques, the tactics and techniques of what's going on. And, and like, if you think, oh, is it gonna cover everything? I think it's important to understand or the way it was described and, and defined to me that it's like, these are the things in this framework that are specific to containers and container orchestration. Once you escape to the node, for instance, you you skip over into you know basic or the, the core attack framework for moving around and pivoting and things on hosts itself. So if you look at it and say, this doesn't encompass literally everything that is in a Kubernetes cluster, I'm fairly certain it's by design, but as a starting point, as a, a place for the community to share knowledge in a, in a shared framework, I think it's really important so that uh, when you're communicating about a certain tactic or a technique uh, in a general sense, people know what you're talking about, they can relate it to something. Uh, and then also say, do I have a solution? Do I have a thought? Do I have a, a capability around the tactics and techniques that I care about? Like this applies to my environment. I have a solution here that might be able to prevent it. And I definitely have something there that we'll see if it ever happens. Cool. Am I alerting on it? Am I sending it to the right people, et cetera, et cetera. But at least I know that I'm covering that area uh, to the best of my ability, to the best of my budget, best of my expertise. Whereas like if you have these other things in this framework, Maybe they don't apply to you, but at least you can say, this is why it doesn't apply to me. That <laughs> assumption can be rechecked later and you don't forget something. You don't leave a gap in your defenses. Awesome. 
Uh, I want to thank both uh, Waleed and Magno again for sending in those questions. Uh, for those of you listening, I tend to just throw this out on Twitter, like maybe a day or two before the interview. I'll ask people if they have questions. So um, if you ever want to participate in that interactivity, it's very much appreciated. Brad, I have one last question for you myself. Mm. Um, so KubeCon is coming up. Um, as you mentioned, you've spoken there before. Um, have you had a chance to look at the schedule? Or are there things that you're excited about seeing? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about a couple things. Uh, I, I didn't submit any, and I'm excited to sort of just let this let this conference come to me. Um, I'm excited just to be a participant and, and not have to prepare for anything. I, I, that sometimes takes away from the enjoyment, uh, yeah. the nerves. I'm excited about Cloud Native Security Day. Uh, there's a CTF there. I hope to be able to participate in that, time willing. Uh, there's a couple talks there about concerns for InfoSec, you know, solving with eBPF. So like here are the things that eBPF can be solving for, not just for like service mesh or networking things, but for security issues like, you know, detecting attacks. That's by, hopefully I'm pronouncing this correctly, Natalia uh, Rika Ivanko. Uh, there's a talk about WebAssembly for dynamic emission control. So writing the policies in WebAssembly and hitting them. I'm, I'd like to see that. I think there's talk about WebAssembly being like potentially baked into the API server or its ability to run that kind of thing. That was something I heard on Twitter. Maybe it's not there, but just exploration, this idea of making emission control uh, a little bit more lightweight and not have to, you know, webhook all the way out somewhere is interesting. Uh, and then there's just, you asked me about supply chain. I'm very curious to hear other folks. Uh, there's like three or four just in Cloud Native Security Day that are touching on aspects of software supply chain. And I really hope that uh, there's a lot of diverse thought in this area because it is such an expansive problem. So I'm curious to hear how everybody views and defines and see, sees those. Um, and then KubeCon, there's a couple talks I'm really excited for. Uh, Mark Borstein's doing an RBAC 101. That's on um, the 5th. Lorenzo Fontana is doing a hiding from attackers. I just love it when people try to find ways to go to bypass or hide in the shadows it's like that's where some creativity comes about i like watching those uh and then ellen corbs and tabby sable are doing a security 101 and i like i would love to keep pointing folks to those types of talks the more those get put out there the, the more accessible it is to to get started and and I, their opinions uh on security are i i have value and high regard so i'd love to see how they present that to, to others so i'm excited about that and then um, there's some other things that Jed uh, Salazar and, and Natalia Rika Ivanko, again, detecting a live attack. I, I really am curious to see how the tools have improved in terms of being able to detect actual malicious activity from innocuous activity uh, yeah. and how that has progressed and how people view that. Because I see not many public attacks going on in Kubernetes. There's not a lot of Beyond the Tesla dashboard from like way back in 2017, there's not too many that are very specific. And I just feel like that's coming, especially with the software supply chain aspect. We're sort of waiting or bracing a little bit. And I want to see how well we're doing in terms of being able to make it uh, accessible to folks to be able to have the detection capability to have even the prevention capability so that if it does come, we're not hit so hard. I, I just I just want to see a lot more growth in that area. And I think... Uh, some of these talks will, will shed some light on that. Well, wow, that's a fantastic list of talks. I mean, uh, definitely some folks that I know about who are, you know, like you mentioned with Ellen and Tabby, they're fantastic and Love them. super smart. And um, yeah, that, thanks so much for sharing that. So do you have anything that you want to plug? So there is a, uh, there's a Twitch stream that's going to be happening during Cloud Native Security Day that's kind of talking about the CTF and things. I'll be a part of that. Oh, cool. Um, and I, that's, I think that's May 4th uh, at 4 p.m. CEST. So that uh, means 11 a.m. my time. Uh, and I'm excited for that. And I'll be on another panel on May 5th. Uh, talking about some of the things from um, a couple of folks, talking with some folks at Sneak and Datadog and another organization. So I really want to be uh, really excited to be part of that panel. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, and you're on Twitter. Yes, at Brad yeah. Deeseman. I will uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, all right. That is all that I have for you, Brad. I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was uh, super fun to talk with you and 
like we said, I'm definitely looking forward to the day when we could hang out in person and, and say hello, swap some high fives, all of that. Absolutely. Cannot wait. Thanks so much for having me. Cube Cuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. 